Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 463. Never stop trying. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jump start a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jump start any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost Jump Starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Brian Redman. Brian, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Well, I hope so. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I'll let our listeners know, uh, today's a special day. Today's Brian's birthday, the day we're recording the show. So happy, happy birthday to you, Brian. Yes, it's fantastic, really. But, you know, coming from England, where people tend to put other people down, um, I'm sure most of your readers have never heard the traditional English birthday song. Oh, no. How does it go? Well, when everybody's finished standing up and singing, happy birthday, da-da-da-da, then the, uh, the Brits amongst them stand up and say, why was he born so beautiful? Why was he born at all? <laughs> He's no bloody use to anyone. He's no bloody use at all. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. But for some reason, that doesn't go down very well in America. In, in England, everybody falls on the floor laughing. Well, I can see why, but yeah, I could see why that might not go over too well if you didn't <laughs> quite understand that marvelous British humor that you have. So uh, thank you for doing that. That is pretty darn special. Brian Redman participated in 358 races in his professional career. He hailed from Great Britain and was victorious outright or in his class in 94 of those races. He finished in the top three 177 times. His tally of classic long-distance victories include the Targa Florio, Daytona 24 hours three times, Sebring 12 hours twice, the Nürburgring 1,000 kilometer twice, and the Spa 1000 kilometer four times. He won four long-distance road racing team championships and five individual road racing championships. The list goes on and on and on. He raced Formula One, Formula 5000, and today, Brian promotes and participates in historic race car events throughout the world when he's not singing birthday songs. So, <laughs> so Brian, before I get into some of these questions, could you tell our listeners just a little bit more about your tremendous uh, career racing, a little bit about your life, and, of course, your ongoing passion for automobiles. 
Well, I started off, you know, like a lot of people in England, Great Britain at that time, in 1959, um, using the car that I used for work every day. And in my case, it was a Morris Thousand Woody, a traveller's car, because I made mop heads, you know, the things you clean the floors with? Oh, yes. Yep, in Burnley, Lancashire. And I put a supercharger on the Morris Minor. It was a 998cc, and I put harder brake linings and an anti-roll bar, you know, at the front and an anti-tramp bracket at the back and went racing. But, of course, no seat belts and no roll cages, oh, gosh. no fire extinguishers, nothing. And that's the kind of the way it was in those days. Well, you know, your, uh, your racing career has been so vast and so wide. And we're going to learn a lot more about you as we go through these list of questions I have for you. But... First, I always like to start with a success quote. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success, and it's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? I know you love to drive, so Brian, take the wheel. Yes, inspirational quote, never stop trying. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. You know, I've had so many racers on the show, and they all say the same thing, basically, never give up. So what's your take on that when it uh, involves your life and, and your life racing and your life today. Well, although I was extraordinarily lucky in a in a lot of ways, I also had quite a number of periods of misfortune. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first of those was 1968. So I'd really got going. Although I'd started racing in 59, it was 65 before I really got going in a good car. It was a lightweight E-type Jaguar, and the next year a Lola T70 Mark II Can-Am car. Oh my gosh. And the next year, 1967, I turned professional because the brother of Charles Bridges, who I'd been driving the Jaguar and the, and the Lola for, said to me, do you want to turn professional? And I said, what does that mean? He said, it <laughs> means I'll pay you 30 quid a week, which is about $60 a week. Oh, my gosh. Guaranteed for a year with a car and a mechanic. And that's how I turned professional. Oh, wow. And so at the end of that year, I was asked by John Wire of the John Wire GT40 Golf Racing Team if I'd like to drive with the young Belgian wonder boy, Jackie Ix, <laughs> yes. at the Kailami 9R race in South Africa. Yeah. And we won the race. And so in November of uh, 1967, uh, things were looking pretty good. I'd signed a contract for 68 with John Wire to do all the long distance races. And at the same time, I signed a Formula One contract for the Cooper Car Company. And um, Jackie Ix and I won the Brunswick six-hour race in April of 68. And we won the 1,000-kilometer race at Spa, Fankersham, in pouring rain in May. Mm -hmm. And I'd finished third in the Spanish Grand Prix in the Cooper. And in a Formula 2 car, which I'd also been running, a Lola T100, I'd finished second to Jochen Rent at the Crystal Palace. And at this point... Various other Formula One team managers were asking about what I was doing and da da da, da yeah. including Colin Chapman of Lotus. Ah. And we went back to Spa Frankersholm, having been there a month before with the GT40 and won. And now we go back to the Grand Prix with the Formula One Cooper. And on about the seventh lap, the front suspension broke, and I had a really enormous accident. Mm. Um, I didn't have any steering or brakes, and I went right into a corner worker's point, and the car turned over in the air and landed on its wheels, fortunately, and it caught fire. Three wheels came off, and it oh nearly my took my right, uh, my right arm off. Oh. And when the surgeon got me on the operating table that night, uh, he was a World War II veteran, a Winston Churchill aide, Mm -hmm. And he said to me, Monsieur Edmund, it may not be possible to save the arm. Oh. I smiled. I said, thank you, Professor. 
<laughs> and he says, why are you smiling? I said, because I'm here. I'm alive, yes. <laughs> you know, as you may imagine, this was a bit of a setback. Yeah. And uh, in October of that year, uh, the English hospital had taken one x-ray and they said it's fine. And I went to race in the Springbok series in South Africa mm-hmm. in a Chevron B8, which was a BMW engine, two-litre sports racer. And after four races, we did the Kyle Army nine hours, Cape Town three hours, Lorenzo Marks three hours, and Bulawayo three hours. And my right arm, where the two bones in my forearm had, had been broken, had come out. It was a compound Ugh. fracture. Uh, it, was fe- it was feeling a bit sore. And as I went back past Johannesburg en route to the next race, I rang the organizer of the Grand Prix and the nine-hour race, Alex Blicknout, and I said, do you know any good bone men mm. in Johannesburg? He said, Brian, man, I know the Christian Barnard of the bone world. <laughs> and so off I went to see David Rue, Dr. Rue. On a Friday afternoon, he took 20 x-rays. He said, sit down, Brian, man, I've got two bits of bad news for you. I uh-huh. said, what? He said, you don't have any union of either bone in the right forearm. I said, oh, oh what's the second gosh. bit? He said, I'm going on vacation tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Doc. <laughs> so anyway, he stayed and he opened my arm up right from wrist to elbow. He cleaned off the broken ends that weren't healing. He took bone out of my right hip and glued it in place because I told him I have to be at Daytona in six weeks' time. Yeah. And he said, I'll try and experiment. It may work and it may not. So I arrived for Daytona, took the sling off, never told anyone. And for my first race with Porsche, this was a five-car team with 10 drivers, six Germans, uh-huh. three English, Vic Alford, Richard Atwood and myself, and one Swiss, Joe Severt. And my arm was giving a bit of trouble. I'm driving with one hand. Anyway, about eight in the evening, the first of the factory long tail 908s came in the pits with the engine misfiring. Uh. The engineers examined it. They said, we are finished. They will uh. all break. <laughs> and we were out by midnight. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, never give up indeed. Oh, my gosh. Wow. What an amazing story. I didn't know that about you. I knew about your accident, but uh, and then ending up with a doctor who was about to go on vacation. I'll try a little something here. We'll see if this works or not. So, uh, wow, what a story. Well, uh, would you share with us a story that instigated your passion with cars? Is there a pivotal moment when you look way, way back to your youth when you really realized that you were a car guy? Well, it was really that in sort of 65, when I had this lightweight E-type Jaguar in English club racing, mostly in the north of England, um, we raced it 15 times and we were first 14 times and were beaten once by a Ferrari 250 LM at Silverstone in September of 65. Mm -hmm. And of course, I realized at this point that it was really something because, you know, I wasn't very good at anything. And uh, when I was 16, the headmaster at the boys' boarding school in the north of England called me into his study and he said, Redmond, I suggest you leave school. We can't teach you anything. So I left school at 16 and never went to college. Oh, my gosh. And so now, you know, by 65, of course, from 59, 60, 61, 62, 4 and 5, I've realized, you know, that I enjoyed it. I never thought there was any way to make a living or anything like that. And so... That was the first time that I realized that, well, I had luckily been blessed, you know, with some kind of talent for this particular sport. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I can't imagine being pulled in by a headmaster saying, no hope for you, son. Time to leave. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine anyone doing that nowadays? (laughs) It just seems so, so bizarre. But, wow, in your case, it obviously worked out quite well. 
Brian, I would love to take a look at some of the roads you've driven down, crawl under the hood, and ask you to share a huge challenge or a great failure. You talked about that devastating injury and the accident, but something else in your life that you've faced in your racing career. But the most important part of this, how did you overcome that particular situation and what did it teach you, enabling you to go forward? I think in the first, in the case of that first accident, uh, you know, and after my first race with Porsche Daytona in uh, February of 69, the Joe Siffert, my co-driver, and I went on to win five out of the ten world championship races for Porsche. And Porsche won the world championship, sports car champion, for the first time ever that year. And so, you know, that was that was very satisfactory. And I realized that, you know, after coming back from the accident and getting going again, first of all, I didn't expect to be instantly a world beater. You know, yeah. I knew it would take time. And that happened again because at the end of 1970, having won the world championship again with the Porsche 917s and 9083s for John, now for John Wire, but these were still factory race cars, I'd retired to South Africa because all my friends were being killed, you know, and I said to my wife, I don't see any reason why I'm not going to join the rest of them. Yeah. And so I retired and only I didn't realize the the horrible facts of uh, apartheid. Mm. And after four months only in Johannesburg, having shipped the car and all the household furniture to Johannesburg, we came back to England. And of course, I didn't have a drive. Mm. But in May, late April of that year, John Wire rang me and he said, Redmond, would you like to do the Targa Florio? Well, I'd won it. In 1970, with Joe Siffert in the 9083 Porsche, and Derek Bell, who took my place in the Porsche team, uh, had never done the Targa. So that was the reason that John Wire asked me. And so to me, this looked like a really great chance, you know, to get back into the big time. Oh, yeah. And I uh, went. Anyway, Siffert crashed the car the day before the race, and they worked on it all night and repaired it. And very unusually, John Wire said, Redmond, I'd like you to start, because normally Joe Siffert started. Mm -hmm. And I said, what for? You know, why why me now and normally Siffert? He said, I don't want Siffert and Rodriguez knocking each other off. <laughs> that was Pedro Rodriguez, yes. our teammate, oh, yeah. who was battling so hard. Yeah. So I started the race, and immediately the handling of the car wasn't normal. And I got 22 miles around the 44-mile track, and turned for a corner that was a fairly easy one, and the steering broke, and I hit a concrete post right in the fuel tank, and the oh. car exploded. Oh, my gosh. And I was on fire from head to foot, soaked in fuel, then running around like Joan of Arc, shouting and yelling, because uh, I couldn't see, my eyes had closed, and so yeah. it was 45 minutes before any any attention of any kind came. Wow. Uh, that was a very difficult, another very difficult period. But again, um, you know, the surgeon I had in England was an ex-World War II surgeon. He mm. treated the, the British fighter pilots. Yeah. And so he did a fantastic job. And so, you know, I carried on again. And so at each time, you know, the, these terrible incidents, yes. um, I just felt that something was trying to stop, you know, some unknown deity not a god or anything but some unknown fate was trying to stop me from racing and i was determined you know not to be stopped not which is why i carried on wow wow so at the end of that year it's at the end of 71 things are really looking grim because the car that i was racing a formula 5000 in england uh, wasn't a very good one i'd only won two races and i'd had this terrible accident on the targa florio and been out of action for you know four or five weeks 
Uh, but at the end of the year, the car entrant uh, borrowed a, a BRM Can-Am car and we went to Imola in Italy. And it rained and the car was particularly good in the rainy, wet conditions. I lapped the field and the field included a factory Ferrari. Ooh. And engineer Mauro Fagheri came up to me and he said, Brian, what are you doing next year? <laughs> <laughs> so I was lucky to drive for Ferrari yeah. and win the World Sports Car Championship again, which was the fourth time. Yeah. And had a fantastic two years with them, really, you know, fantastic. And so there we were. Lucky again. You know? Well, I think there was a little more than luck involved there. There was some talent, of course, and, and opportunity. But, uh, boy, that great quote by Winston Churchill, never, never, ever, ever give up, certainly came into play with what yes. you were doing. Wow, yes. fantastic. Hey, Brian, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share a career aha moment. I'd like to say it's when those headlights or those marshals brighten up the road for you while you're doing one of those 24-hour races and give you a new idea for a new direction you had in your career. Tell us the steps you took to turn your aha moment into a success. Well, you know, I never, I, I, I just carried on because it was the only thing that I had any talent for. And that's really why, plus, as I mentioned earlier, that I thought some fate was trying to stop me and I didn't want to be stopped. And mm. so, that was there was no sort of sudden moment when I thought you know and I still carried on and so this year is my fifty sixth year of racing you know which is wow and I was you know so lucky and so you know then coming to America and winning the three Formula five thousand championships yeah. with Jim Hall and Carl Haas and Mario Andretti finished second for two years seventy four and five and Alan Cecini was second the other year in seventy six. And then they changed the rules because Can-Am, which had been the big sports cars, had had bigger crowds than the Formula 5000. And so the organizers of the race meetings changed the rules and they made us put bodywork on these open wheel cars. And then the first race for the new season in June of 1977, I arrive in Sandravit, Canada. I've never seen the car before, but I know that it's going to be good, you know, because Jim Hall, Chaparral prepared car. Oh, yeah. So out I go in it. I come in 20 minutes. Jim says, how is it? I said, it's good. And he said, what would you like? You know, what would you like to change? And so I, I didn't, I said, nothing, nothing really. I said, but take quarter of an inch off the front wing, lower it by quarter of an inch. Mm-hmm. And on the next lap at 170 miles an hour, it took off. Oh, no. It went 40 feet in the air, turned over and came down. Oh. And that one broke my neck. C1, smashed my left shoulder, split my breastbone, broke my ribs. The roll bar gave way and my head went down on the road and wore the side off the helmet. Oh, my uh, My gosh. heart stopped and the ambulance blew a tire on the way to hospital. Oh, my gosh. Oh, jeez. So that, that took me a year to recover. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, man, I don't mean to laugh, but I'm just sitting here going, know, how yeah. much more crazy can things get for you? And yeah. yet you just kept going. You did not yes. give up. You know, your stories are a wonderful testament to those folks listening to car yet, cars yet, those entrepreneurs out there that are struggling and trying to make it in their career, whatever it is, it's a testament to, you know what, no matter what life throws at you, you just got to keep finding a way. Uh, you just have to keep plowing through. Wow. Man, what a story. Well, I would assume you've had many, many very proud moments in your career, but is there one in particular you could share with us today that really stands out for you? Well, in many ways, you know, not necessarily winning a race, you know, in a race where you've absolutely given everything you've got and the car's got, and you might finish second or even third, Mm -hmm. and still 
feel it was a great race. And I had a race like that against Mario at Mossport in 1975, where before the race, I'd seen that he'd lowered his rear wing for more speed up the up the long uphill straight. And I said to Jim Hall, I said, look at that. And he, Jim said, do you want to do the same? And I thought about it and I said, no, I think I'll stay like I am. I know how the car is, you know. The result of that was that Mario pulled six or seven car lengths ahead of me mm-hmm. on every lap going up the hill. And on every lap, I caught him by the second corner. I was back with him again. Oh, wow. And I couldn't get past. And we lapped the entire field. And we were lapping as fast as the Grand Prix Formula One cars. And uh, so it was a fantastic race. And yeah. then 1970, Chevron had made a two-litre car. Uh, the B16 stroke S, which became the B19, and at Spa-Francorchamps, the last race of the year, it was 500 kilometers, just over 300 miles, mm-hmm. and my chief opposition was Joe Bonnier, who was a Formula One driver, and he was the Lola agent for Europe, and he oh, was in yeah. a Lola 210, and we swapped places, you know, two or three times a lap for 500 kilometers. Wow. And I'd passed him on the next-to-last lap, and I thought I'd got a nice little lead. And to my horrors, we went up the slightly uphill back straight. He just caught me and came past me. And so we come into the last corner of the last lap, La Source, the hairpin mm-hmm. in first gear. And we were still, we were side by side and still flat out, and I'd gone past where I thought I could break, you know. And so I, I went up the escape road with the wheels locking and unlocking, and I turned around expecting to see Joe Bonnier crossing the uh, finish line and the checkered flag, and when I turned, he'd he'd spun, and he was sideways. And so we won, and Chevron won the championship by one point over Lola. Uh And so, you know, there's so many. I mean, I've done so many races that it's hard to bring back any... It was special winning the Long Beach Grand Prix in uh, September of 1975 Mm, in the the Lola. But, you know, that was a race where, of course, I drove reasonably well, but um, it was a race of attrition because on Saturday, uh, at that time, you went along this top road and then you turned right and you went over a slight hill downhill in second gear mm-hmm. and just for a fraction you were flat out before breaking for a tight left-hander well towards the end of practice on the saturday as i gave it full throttle after going over this hump the car went sideways and so when i came in i said to jim hall there's something the matter with the differential and he said boy i sure hate to look at it you know right before the race but anyway they looked they took the the rear axle out the diff out yeah. And the limited slip had broken. The Wiseman limited slip had broken. Oh. They put a new one in. Four laps into the race, it broke again. Oh, God. Now I have to take it. You know, I've got to back off. Yeah. And Mario's leading and uh, Tony Bryce, Graham Hill's protege is second and Alan's third. And I'm in fourth, but I'm dropping back. And the next thing I see, Mario's stopped going up the bumpy hill. His, his uh, gearbox has broken. Tony Bryce is stopped with a broken drive shaft. And Alan's is stuck in the wall, so I'm leading. <laughs> <laughs> well, and therein goes so, the story, never give up, because you never know what's going to happen to that guy in front of you, right? No, you never know. And it was funny, a lot of funny things, really, because in those days, Long Beach was a, a terrible area. It was all bars and brothels and old yeah. people's homes. Yeah. And we're standing in practice, and there's a little old lady from one of the old people's homes standing next to me, and we're watching the cars go by, and she says, tell me, Sonny, she says, are those real men in those cars? <laughs> <laughs> 
I said, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea who those guys are. After the race, they couldn't find the race queen, and she was later found uh, drunk on the floor of a local bar. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Well, you know, that race you won, 75, that was my first attendance of the Long Beach Grand Prix. I was a junior in high school, and I remember that event so well. And uh, it's pretty neat to be talking to you now all these years later. Very cool. I love that. Now let's have a little bit of fun. What was your first really special car? And if you want to talk about race car, that's fine too. But the first really special car in your life, maybe you can share a memory you have of that vehicle. Yes, well, my my first actual car was a 1932 Morris Tourer, two-seater Tourer. And uh, it did 50 miles an hour flat out downhill (laughs) with the wind behind it. And then I had a Singer 9, and then I got a very strange car called a Grenfell Special. And it had been built by a guy in the south of England for hill climbing. Mm -hmm. And it had a flathead Ford V8 engine, and it had cycle-type fenders. And it was pretty good. It was quick. I had, we had a lot of a lot of fun in it. Amazing, they never hit anything. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, you can, you can look it up on the internet. It's Grenfell, G-R-E-N-F-E-L-L, Grenfell Special. Yeah. I saw it on the internet a few weeks ago. Oh, wow. Very cool. We'll have to check that one out. Now, are there any vehicles that you've owned in your life that you let go that you really wish you had back in your garage? <laughs> <laughs> Well, in 1975, I bought a Porsche 917K. Ooh. And it was a time, of course, when the Porsches were no longer allowed to run. They were effectively, they were outlawed at the end of 1971. Of course, after that, they carried on as Can-Am cars, but this was one of the original sports cars, and it was the car that was bought by Solar Productions for the Steve McQueen film. Oh, okay. And it replicated Joe Siffert and my race car, which was number 20. So it was number 20 in Gulf colors. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, when I broke my neck, I, I paid uh, $19,000 for it. Ooh. And when I broke my neck in Canada in 77, by, in, by 79, I was really, I wasn't earning anything and I had to sell it. And I sold it to a friend of mine, Richard Atwood, who had won Le Mans in a 917 in 1970, but not that particular car. Yeah. And then about 10 or 12 years after that, I sold it for him uh, at auction in Monterey, and it now belongs to Jerry Seinfeld. Yep. Yeah, I saw that car at Rensport this past summer. Yes. Or last exactly. year, actually. Yeah, yeah. so uh, very cool. So you had that car after its uh, retirement. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah. Wow, wow. What a special ride for sure. Now, you're involved with a lot of historic events these days. I know as we're recording this, you're getting ready to head over to Amelia Island. There's a historic race weekend happening after that. Is there anything that you're working on right now, this 2016, that really has you excited and fired up for this year? Well, it looks like a, a very busy year. I mean, by good fortune, I'd won the Sebring 12 Hours in 1975 in a BMW CSL, a factory car, mm-hmm. and then the Daytona 24 Hours in another CSL, not the same model, but not the same car. And the, the present president and CEO of BMW North America, Ludwig Willisch, is a very keen race fan and a very keen old classic car race fan. And in fact, he races that Sebring winning CSL at Monterey each August. Yeah. And because of that, BMW have been good enough to employ me for several days work last year in connection with that. And they will be doing this weekend at Amelia Island where we have a BMW dinner 
And we have a BMW symposium on the Saturday morning with Hans Stuck, David Hobbs, Bill Oberlin, Sam Posey, myself, um, Boris Said, you know, quite a group. And so that's yeah. that this weekend. And the following weekend, I'm with BMW again at Sebring. And then in August at Monterey, I expect to be with them again. It's the 100th year anniversary. And the week after that is the BMW Club have the Monterey track, Laguna Seca track. Oh, yeah. And I've also, the other exciting thing is, although I find it extremely wearing, is a, a friend of mine decided the world needed a new motor racing book. And there's now a Brian Redman book. And if anybody wants to see, they can read the first chapter, which is Spa Frankisham on the website, mm-hmm. which is just go race, go race.com. Yeah. And so that's all there. And then in uh, May, I'm going to England for the British introduction of the book at the RAC Club in London. Wonderful. The day after that, I go to Monaco as a tour guide to the Monaco Historic Races in the middle of May. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And on the Monday after that, on the Monday after the races, we go down the Italian coast to a village called Camogli. Mm -hmm. And from there, we go to Maranello, to Ferrari. Then to Modena, to the new Ferrari Museum, and then to the <laughs> Garda and Brescia for the start of the Mille Miglia. So, boy, is it is it busy. You are a very busy guy. Well, let me touch for a brief moment on this new book, because I really want our listeners to know about this. What's the title of your new book? Well, it's Brian Redman and something and something. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> we changed the title about six times. <laughs> and is the book available now for people to it purchase? Is. It is. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. where's the best place for people to go purchase this? Oh, you just go on to Go Race. Go Race. Our website, and there is the order form, and you just fill it in and pay with PayPal, and that's it. Okay, awesome. Great. Very, very good. Well, Brian, you know, uh, I really want to make sure that one of our listeners get a hold of this book as a special treat from you. So, uh, listeners, Brian has been so kind as to give away one of his new books to one of our Cars Yow listeners today. So, if you're a subscriber at Cars Yow, you'll have an opportunity later on today to be a winner of one of Brian's books. Very, very cool. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy as well. Now, Brian, here's a very introspective question for you. If you were a car or a race car, what kind would you be and why? (laughs) Nobody's ever asked me that. Yeah, that's a kind of a unique question. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I don't think I'd be a Porsche 917 because they broke in half across the cockpit (laughs) if you hit something. Ouch. Or 9083 where you sat so far forward. It only weighed 1,100 pounds. Yeah. And you were so, you sat so far forward that your front w- feet were in front of the front wheels. Mm. So no, so I don't uh, today. I mean, I'd have to choose probably a modern car, mm-hmm. and I think I'd probably choose the latest and greatest Porsche hybrid. I mean, Porsche have always built such fantastic cars, yes, and such wonderfully reliable and great race cars and. It's an inc- an incredible company, and I think that's probably what I'd choose today. A Porsche hybrid. Very interesting. Well, thank you for that answer. Very cool. So, Brian, up next is what I call the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Hey, Cars Yeah listeners, I have a question. What's the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and the interior? It's with a car cover. I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft is the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers, and they are crafted to fit like a custom suit with over 80,000 patterns available. And they're made in the USA. 
But Covercraft is much more than car covers. Their vehicle protection system protects your cars, motorcycles, watercrafts, and RVs, exteriors from the elements, and the interiors from the wear and tear of daily life. Car covers, front end masks, dash covers, seat covers, floor mats, and much, much more. Covercraft offers you a full array of custom accessories made specifically for and styled to complement and protect your special vehicle. Covercraft is the right choice. I use them on all my vehicles, and your special vehicles will love them too. Learn more today at Covercraft.com. And you can get free shipping when you use the code at checkout, Cars Yeah. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Okay, Brian, we're back and we're entering the last lap. You're a racer and you know what this means. The white flag's out. It's time to put our foot to the floor. And I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick Blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Okay. What's the best automotive, and I'll include racing advice, you ever received? I received it from Juan Manuel Fangio at the British Grand Prix at Aintree in the north of England in 1955. I went up to him and I said, how do you go so fast, Mr. Fangio? He (laughs) said, more throttle, less brake. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty simple, pretty simple. Maybe there's a little more to it, but I I love that. (laughs) Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years? Well, in the old days, one of the big dangers was uh, jammed throttle, stuck throttle. Mm -hmm. And the first time it happened to me was in uh, Montlhery near Paris Mm. in a matra. And it was my first time in the car, and it was only my second lap, and I'm going 175 miles an hour down the straight uh, to this left-hand bend. And as I lifted to brake, it shot forward, you know, and the throttle jammed open, and I I knew nothing about any of the instruments or anything, and I just declutched. I just put out the clutch. And fortunately, that particular engine had a rev limiter on, so it just went up on the rev limiter. But I didn't crash, and so... Every night before that, every night before I went to sleep, I'd go to sleep saying to myself, brakes locked off the pedal, brakes locked off the pedal, because I'd also had some near misses. Mm-hmm. You know, you're braking as late as you can, yeah. and you brake a bit too late, and the wheels are locked. Now what do you do? The last thing that you want to do is to come off the brake, yeah. and you have to in order to steer the car. Yeah. And so every night I said that to myself, and after the Monterey incident in the Matra, I also added on jam throttle declutch, jam throttle mm. declutch, and that saved me six times. I had six jam throttles, and fortunately, touch wood, I uh, never had an accident through it. I had some near ones, but never actually hit anything. So. Wow, wow. I remember when I was learning how to race at driving school, the instructor said, when in a spin, both feet in. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay as well, yeah. 
And how about a resource? There are so many great resources out there these days, for instance, on the internet. But is there one in particular you've really enjoyed that you think our listeners would like as well? I think the Road Racing Drivers Club website, Safe is Fast, Mm. is a great educational website. It has a huge number of hits and is extremely well done. This is all through the leadership of Bobby Ray Hall, who's the president, and Jim Mullen, who's my co-writer on the book who uh, has put the whole thing together. And it's a very, very good resource for would-be racers. Awesome. Great. Now, how about a book? And we talked about your new book, Brian Redmond, but is there another book in particular that you've read recently, perhaps, that you think our listeners would really enjoy? I don't think so. I mean, I haven't read any sort of educational race-driving books for a long time now. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in my day, there really weren't any. Yeah. There were no driver schools. Right. I mean, in my first Grand Prix, only half the drivers wore seatbelts. Oh, yes. Because of the danger of fire. I was in six fires, you know, in between 68 and 72. And so, in terms of motor racing books, the ones I've enjoyed the most have been the old ones, the Caracciola book and oh, the yes. New Valari book. I, oh. love, I love those. I have original copies of both of those, and I still read them today and go over what they've said and what, what Neubauer, the team manager for Mercedes said. Oh, yeah. They're fantastic. Uh, listeners, I'll make sure that we put these resources on Brian's show notes page on carsyad.com slash Brian Redmond. Just go to that page and you can find links to all these great resources. All right, Brian, we are up to the checkered flag. And this last question can be a real doozy. <laughs> if you could have only one collector car, and I'll include collector race car if you'd like in your garage, But money's no object. Today, you know, it's your birthday. I'm going to buy you whatever car in the world you'd like to have. What would that one vehicle be? And more importantly, why? Well, I I think I'd choose a a pre-war Mercedes W125 or 193 or or perhaps the Auto Union, which was so much more difficult to drive. Uh, Because to me, those, those were the real heroic days of motor racing, racing on these tracks which weren't really tracks, you know, they weren't properly surfaced, Mm -hmm. with these hugely powerful cars with terrible narrow wheels and tires and tires that weren't reliable either. And I thought those those heroes of those days, the Caracciolas, the Neubauers, the, the Stucks, and the rest were really, really fantastic. Oh, yeah. Well, let's see. If we had to narrow it down between the Mercedes and the Auto Union, and if you had to make a decision today because those birthday candles are melting down, you got to blow them out <laughs> and make that wish, which of those two cars do you think you'd, you'd choose today? Well, I think I'd choose the Auto Union. Ah, uh, yeah. I kind of thought you'd say that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it had, it's a difficult reputation. Yes. And... You know, Bernd Rosemeyer was killed when he was trying to set a new world speed record. And mm, yeah. it was such a heroic, you know, such a heroic era. Yeah, yeah. And people say that the 917 and Ferrari 512 era of the 70s was also the great classic era. But somehow, you know, to me, that these the risks involved and the fires and the tires and the tracks themselves and yeah. no seat belts or anything... When Rosemeyer was killed in his land speed record attempt, he was on the autobahn between Frankfurt and Darmstadt. Oh, yeah. Uh, at the end of January 1938. 
And he was competing for the record against Rudolf Caracciola, you know, the other yeah. fantastic day. Yeah, wow. He'd, he'd set a new record. It was 268 miles an hour. Oh, that's mind-boggling. In January 1938. Well, January, too. Yeah, the yes. winter. The road's cold. Yeah, yeah. I just it's mind-boggling, mind-boggling. Well, auto union it is in for your birthday today, my friend. I think that's an awesome choice. It's going to cost me a pretty penny, I can see, but uh, <laughs> that's okay because it's for you. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and what you're doing these days? Do you have a website? Well, it's really the Go Race, the same one that we'd use on for the book. Okay. It's just Go Race, Go Race. Awesome. Well, Brian, you've taken me on a wonderful ride today. I knew you would, and I really want to thank you for sharing your stories and your journey. And I'll remind our listeners you can find links to everything Brian shared with us today on his very own Cars Yeah show notes page at CarsYeah.com. Brian, thanks for being so generous with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with the Cars Yeah listeners and with me. It's been a real joy. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Okay, Mark. Look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Yeah.